We've been uh, looking in recent weeks and months at the whole subject of hearing God and how we might hear him uh, more effectively in our day-to-day walk and life with him. And as we're looking ahead, we're going to be thinking about uh, how we might know God uh, more deeply and uh, yeah, just see a greater evidence of his power at work with us, uh, within us and through us uh, to impact uh, this community in which we live. And it's these concerns that have led me uh, in my thinking as I prepared for this morning to uh, speak on this subject. I'm not going to speak directly about hearing God. Uh, I'm not going to sort of necessarily keep referring to knowing God, but you'll see fairly quickly that there does things are impossible without what I'm talking about this morning. And so I've entitled this morning's message, uh, A Desire for Purity and Presence. And I've been taken to uh, Psalm 51, if you want to open up your Bibles and have a look. Um, And particularly, just focusing in on a couple of verses, really, and... Uh, That is verses 10 and 11, uh, in which we read, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's sometimes said that uh, no Christian should ever pray this prayer. I wonder whether that's right. Clearly, David feared being cast away from God and losing the presence of the Spirit. The big question really is not what does this mean to us in the first instance, but uh, what did it mean to David? What was he thinking and feeling uh, when he prayed this prayer? One of the keys to understanding why he longed not to be cast from God's presence or to lose the Holy Spirit uh, is in this previous verse. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, David, he was a man of God, and he had an unclean heart. This isn't before he met the Lord. This is David, the man of God, with an unclean heart. This isn't David, the unbeliever. This is David, who is described as the man after God's own heart. This is a man who said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is the one who God personally chose to be the king over his people. But he had an unclean heart. He knows the Lord. He's the leader of God's people. He writes worship music. And he has an unclean heart. 
When a man has an unclean heart, he rightly fears being cast from God's presence. He rightly fears losing the Holy Spirit. And the heart always tells the truth, eventually. When God chose him, we're told, as he looked upon David amongst his brothers, he said, the Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And a man, it seems to me, uh, yeah, he can, he can lie to others. He can lie to himself, but his heart will tell the truth eventually. Some of you may be familiar uh, with a little story, uh, it's just a short story by someone called Edgar Allan Poe. And it's called The Telltale Heart. And after committing murder, the main character dismembers uh, the body uh, that he's killed. And he puts uh, does the, those dismembered parts uh, deep under the floorboards of his home. And he's buried them. And he does such a good job. He, he actually, when the police come to investigate, he leads them around and he helps to give them clues. But the murderer is unable to escape uh, the haunting of his guilt of this dead person. And he begins to hear the heartbeat of the dead victim. And a cold sweat comes over him. And yeah, this heartbeat just seems to go on and on, relentlessly, getting louder and louder. And Poe uh, repeats it for effect. He says, louder, louder, louder. Finally, in desperation, the sound just wouldn't go away. And he admits the crime. And the story ends this way. It says, villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. Is this beating, hideous heart. But the pounding that drove him mad was not underneath the floorboards, but in his own chest. And guilt is like that. When we've sinned, the heart will not fully come to rest again until it's clean. And so David prayed, create in me a pure heart, O God. He heard the pounding of his own guilty heart and he couldn't live with the shame any longer of what he'd done. And that is the key to verse 11. And his heart cried that he would not lose or be cast from God's presence or lose the reality of the Holy Spirit. It's all about David's heart. And I've described his heart in three ways. 
uh, in his recovery process. And the first thing I notice is that he has a broken heart. We're not left to wonder uh, why David feels so guilty. You just have to read the introduction to the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Oh, so that's what it's all about. One day, David was king in the spring of the year. It was at the time when kings normally go out to war. And David's armies had been sent out into battle. But he did not go with them for some reason. He stayed in Jerusalem. Perhaps uh, he was confident that his army could fight and win the battle without his presence. Perhaps he had affairs of state to attend to. Perhaps he was just tired, bored, restless. One evening, he goes for a walk in the cool of the day. And there he sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, taking a bath. Seeing her aroused a great desire within him. So he sent for her and she came. Now that was a day unlike the present, not unlike the present day, where powerful men think that they can do what they want and break the rules with impunity. We see it everywhere. David was an, a powerful man, the ruler of his nation. And he thought he could call an, a, a married woman to himself, and it was okay. As king, he could have called any unmarried woman to himself, and they would have come. You don't say no to the king. But Bathsheba was married, and he knew she was married because his servant had said to him, this woman is the wife of a man called Uriah the Hittite. He, he knew what it was about. Hmm. He shouldn't have called her, and she shouldn't have come. But he did, and she did, and they slept together. Which is a rather modern way of saying that the two of them committed adultery. In the Old Testament, adulterers were put to death. But David being king, well, that wasn't likely to happen to him. If anyone was expected to get away with it, surely the king could get away with it. So they slept together and she went home. Days passed and it seemed that the little affair had been nothing more than that. A little affair. Uh, a brief fling. Uh, a lapse in judgment. A moment of foolishness. A giving in to the sinful nature. Then, on a certain day, Bathsheba sends word to the palace to tell the king 
she's pregnant. That's what you call a complicating factor, isn't it? (laughs) This is an example of what the Bible talks about when it says the wages of sin. You can't get away with sinning indefinitely. You can't just keep going on misbehaving and displeasing God and thinking you're just going to get away with it. In Numbers 32 and 23, it says, you can be sure your sin will find you out. And this is true whether you're the king or just an ordinary person like you and me. So David faces a dilemma. He has to find a way to cover up his sin. So, he, so David calls Uriah back from the, uh, the battle and he comes to Jerusalem and then refuses uh, to be tricked and sleep with his wife because his mates are still fighting on the front line. So that didn't work. And David has no alternative. If Uriah dies, he thinks... He can lawfully marry Bathsheba. So he arranges for Uriah to go back into the battle, go right out onto the front line, and the rest of Israel pull back so he is certain to die. And he marries, in time, Bathsheba. All seems well for a while, but then you get to 2 Samuel and chapter 11, verse 27. And you read these little words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. He sees. Others may not have known all that went on, but he sees. And he was displeased. And Nathan the prophet comes to the king and confronts him and he says, in light of your sin, this son that's been born as a result of your adultery will die. And despite David's prayers, he does die. Think of what David has done. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He's caused sorrow and shame to come on his own house. He's caused bloodshed and turmoil to come on his nation. And the child has died. And it's all because of sin. His sin. And that's the background to Psalm 51. It's a portrait of a man who is unclean, who is wanting to come back to God. But the second thing I notice, not only do I see a humble heart, I see an honest heart. How do we know that the repentance that David made is real? Well, it seems to me fairly straightforward. It's recorded for us. He's written it down so that we can all know about it. It's there in the Bible forever. For it to be referred to and understood. Proverbs 28.13 tells us, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, 
but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. The hardest words you and I ever say are, I have sinned. You know, we, we edge left and right. We do not want to come to that place and say, before God and before others, I have sinned. A pastor uh, once uh, received a letter from a man who'd been uh, committed uh, to prison for a terrible crime. And he's now behind bars and he's full of remorse. And his fear is that he has committed uh, the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. And the pastor wrote to him and he said, I think I can definitely say you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Well, how could he be sure? Well, the one mark of the unpardonable sin is that the person who's committed it would not care about it. It's not just any sin. It's a hard-hearted, persistent, deliberate, and final rejection of the Lord. Such a person takes the key to heaven and deliberately throws it away. And he says, I'd rather go to hell and laughs about it. Anyone who worries about committing the unforgivable sin shows that they still have a conscience. It's hard to admit you've done wrong. It's hard to admit you've hurt someone. It's hard uh, to get down on your knees and say, oh God, forgive me for I have sinned. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, but it seems to me that that is a big if. And unless we confess our sins, the rest of that verse has no application to us. Let's just look at David's confession for a few moments. First of all, in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, he uses three different words to refer to his sin. He says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, he says. And then his rhetoric, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I'm pulling out the the key elements of it, but effectively what he says in the coming verses is this. In verse 3 he says, I know my sin. In verse 4 he says, I have done evil in your eyes. In verse 5 he says, I've been a sinner since I was conceived. Verse 6 he says, I know you want truth in my inner being. Verse 7, Only you can make me clean. Verse 8, only you can give me joy again. Verse 8, verse 9, sorry, please wipe away the record of my sin. Oh God, the cross. (laughs) 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. And verse 12, give me back the joy I once had. If you want to know what confession looks like, read Psalm 51. Study it. Pray it. Pray it out loud. Memorize it. Tattoo it, as it were, upon your soul. This is probably one of the greatest examples of true confession that we read in the Scriptures. But the next thing I say will be encouraging to you. Yes, he had a humble heart, an honest heart, but he has a hopeful heart. And that brings us to verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. These are fitting words for a Christian who's fallen into sin. It may be gross sin or it may be a sort of slow and casual backsliding. Small sins are often more dangerous than the big ones. The big ones somehow jolt us into repentance. But the small ones, it's a bit like a frog in a, a boiling kettle or whatever. As the water slowly gets warmer and warmer, the, the, the frog sits there and it becomes accustomed to it. Until it gets to a certain point where even if it wanted to move, it can't. Too late. Many small sins often produce a worse effect than the one big sin. I was reading this week, one writer wrote, White ants will devour a carcass as surely and as speedily as a lion. Let me, we're doing a bit of heart searching, okay? Let me ask you a few questions, and I've been asking them of myself. Have we taken God's grace for granted? We're great preachers of grace. We believe in grace. Uh, we know we'd be nowhere without it. We, we seek to stand in the good of it, but sometimes we think grace gives us liberty to do things that we shouldn't be doing. And I ask the question, have we taken God's grace for granted? Has our love for God grown cold? Are we careless about prayer? Are we slow, have we slowly grown lukewarm in our Christian faith? Do we love the world too much? Have we been lazy in the Lord's service? Do we harbor a root of bitterness? Do we let resentment linger? 
Have we spoken unkindly about other Christians? Are we careless in our words? Have we become spiritually cold? If these things are true, even in a measure, then we ought to be praying David's prayer most fervently. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me encourage you, if you can pray those, that prayer, you're probably a true Christian. Only a true Christian prays like that. An unbeliever doesn't care if they're cast from the Holy, God's presence or they, lose, lose, or they miss out on the presence of the Holy Spirit. They've never experienced him. They don't really look for him or want him. But those who have known it, the presence of the Lord, the blessing of the Spirit, the, the loss of the reality of that, that is something else. That provokes us. You know, only the child of God knows the pain of God's discipline. It doesn't seem pleasant at the time, but it's one of the greatest mercies uh, that God imparts to us. Because those who have dwelt in the sunlight of God's love shiver in the cold darkness of his displeasure. And it is that mercy that brings us back and provokes us to reassess our lives and realign again with what God desires for us. It's a sure sign of spiritual life. Are there any great sinners in our midst today? For many years I thought I was the worst. And then Paul told me he was. <laughs> yeah. If you feel the pain of your sin, it means you know the Lord. The guilt you feel is his mercy. The tears and the sighs, that means there's life there. Your pain, your shame, your frustration, that means you're a true child of God. You may be wondering how I share square what I'm teaching you this morning with the doctrine of eternal security. I would simply say that we shouldn't try to impose too much of the New Testament into David's words. He wasn't thinking in those categories. David knew enough to realize that he was successful because of the Holy Spirit's blessing on his life. If that blessing was removed, he could no longer lead God's people. 
I believe fervently in eternal security. But that provokes me to pray this prayer. <laughs> it's not right to pray for things that God has no disposition to provide. But as Carol was saying earlier, when God has given a promise, then surely we should pray in the light of that promise. And so, the fact that we know that we are secure for eternity causes us to cry out to God with the best possible reason that he would not let his presence be taken from us or his Holy Spirit be taken away. The promise, the reason for the prayer. David knew the wonder of the Spirit. He knew the blessing. If we were to pray in New Testament terms, maybe you'd be more comfortable praying something like this. Oh Lord, I have sinned. I've sinned greatly and I'm not, no longer worthy to be called your son. Does that ring a bell? The words of the prodigal in Luke 15. Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me, lest I be found not among your family. Do you know, I was walking down the street with Jean today to the church, and we were just thinking on one or two friends that we've known over the years, and just saying, where are they today? Where are they today? Where are they today? And it grieved us. What was David thinking when he prayed this prayer? Maybe he was thinking about Adam when he was cast out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe he was thinking about Cain, who after he'd killed his brother was sentenced to wander the earth. Perhaps he was thinking about wayward Samson, who knew the Spirit's power, then squandered it in anger and unbridled lust. But more than any of those, maybe he was thinking about Saul, the man who preceded him on the phone on the throne. We're told that the Spirit came upon Saul again and again, giving him victory in battle. But because of his disobedience, David was chosen as king in his place. In 1 Samuel 16 and 13, it says, David was anointed, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And what of Saul? The next verse is possibly one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament. For it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. He who had started with such promise, such potential, is now abandoned by God. And when the Spirit left him, his natural paranoia 
took over, leaving him filled with anger, resentment and envy. And he goes after David to kill him again and again. David knew uh, what it was like uh, to lose the blessing of God and to have the Holy Spirit taken away. He saw it with his own eyes. And so he says, Lord, don't let it happen to me. This is the heart of his prayer. Lord, without your spirit to strengthen me, I have no power. Without your Holy Spirit to guide me, I just don't know which way to go. Without your Holy Spirit to give me wisdom, I cannot lead these people. It's a prayer that he would not lose the Spirit's blessing upon his life. And we need the Spirit, or we cannot pray. We need the Holy Spirit, or we cannot understand. We need the Holy Spirit, who brings every divine blessing to us. The Holy Spirit gives us access to the Father through the Son. This is behind my heart cry. Let us no longer take the Holy Spirit for granted. If the Holy Spirit was taken away, we might as well be lost. I stated in that way because I just want to startle us into the reality of the difference. It's as black and white as that. With him, we have all things. Without him, we have nothing. We cannot sing, we cannot pray, we cannot worship, we cannot serve, we cannot minister to other people, we cannot witness without the Holy Spirit. We cannot come near to God without the Holy Spirit. We are told to pray in the Spirit. And if we are praying devoid of the Spirit, we are just babbling. It's nothing. He is our teacher, our guide, our helper, our comforter. He brings us near to God. We cannot live without him. Mm. My brothers and sisters... We have every right to pray this way, to pray this prayer of David. And I'm encouraging us this morning to attend uh, to the state of our hearts in the way of humility, in the way of honesty, and in the way of hope. Let us be renewed in our desire for purity and presence. Purity and presence. If you're aware of some backsliding in your life, then now is the time to come back to the Lord. Begin by praying this prayer. Cry out to God and don't stop crying out until God hears 
and answers you. You don't need to live with a guilty conscience forever. Seek the Lord. Kneel before him and confess your sins. And he will, the scripture says, abundantly pardon. There are times when a Christian must seem to pray like a sinner. The lower you can get, the better. I frequently find that I cannot pray as a minister. I cannot pray even as one who is fully assured as a Christian. But I thank God that I can come to him. And I can pray as a sinner. And I begin with, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And by degrees, I rise up again to faith and to assurance. And even to feeling the wind of the Spirit coming under my wings and taking me up again. If you've been sinning, don't be ashamed to pray like a sinner. That's not a bad place to start. Let's just take a few moments and attend to our hearts. Let's just allow, invite the Holy Spirit to come and to raise to the surface of our hearts uh, the things uh, that are disadvantaging us and displeasing him. And let us take this time to confess, to pray this prayer, to ask for God himself to create a new heart within us. And to bring back to us again the full blessing that is ours in the Spirit.